Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ms. Wolf, first of all, thank you for your interest in working here at REI. I've been going over your resume. Impressive, huh? I am practically a cyclone of outdoor daring do. You mentioned climbing Denali. Yeah, that one was a challenge. One of my Sherpas fell into a crevasse. I had to rescue it by tying an ice axe to my foot thingies. <laughs> uh, crampons. How did you know that? They were so painful that day. But I didn't let that stop me. You know, a lot of people said to me, why risk your life over something that's basically a ball of wool on hooves? But I say Sherpas deserve our loyalty. Sherpas are people, not a kind of sheep. Also, they are in Nepal. Yeah, you bet they are. Yeah, but uh, Denali is in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So is Mount McKinley. Denali is Mount McKinley. It's just another name for... Never mind. Let's move on. Uh, you say you competed in the Tour de France four times in recent years? Mm-hmm, and I've got the road rash to prove it, or as our French friends call it, éruption de la asphalt. Um, there is no women's Tour de France. I know. It's an outrage, right? Therefore, you couldn't have... Oh, hold on there for just a second. I can't believe you and, by implication, REI, are going to stick up for that kind of pork-faced sex discrimination. No, no, it's, it's just that you claim... Maybe we better park it right there before you dig yourself in any deeper. Any other sex-based questions, Mr. Creepy Pants? Mm, no. When do I start? Is Tuesday okay? Make it Wednesday. I'm going camping in the mojitos. There is no... Ugh, never mind. Do whatever you want. Today on the show, the shadowy world of false credentials. And now there's little basis for his claim that he was the drummer for Foreigner, Colin McEnroe. No, but I often did feel like a foreigner, anyway, when I was trying to play the drums, and that's fairly close to that, anyway. We are going to talk about the world of false credentials, and there's all kinds of false credentials, all kinds of ways in which people exaggerate their qualifications for things. Um, towards the end of the show today, we're going to talk to Walter Kern, uh, a novelist and, and journalist uh, who was fooled for 10 years by a man claiming to be a member of the Rockefeller family. He was not that, but he was... Um, other things, including some fairly dangerous other things. Um, we're also going to be talking to Brian Deneen. He's Associate Professor of Management at Cranert School of Management in Purdue University. Just completed a study about when and why job singers, seekers commit resume fraud. Um, we're, we're starting here in the studio with Mark Oppenheimer. He's going to be with us for the entire show. Uh, writes the bi-weekly beliefs column for the New York Times. Contributes to, he has, he has the best managed journalism career that I know. Uh, and uh, he's also has a doctorate from Cambridge and the Sorbonne, a former <laughs> member of the U.S. archery team. And I'm in Mensa. And he's an ordained, <laughs> and an ordained rabbi. Right. Exactly. Um, so uh, he's the author of several books, including the ebook Zen Predator of the Upper West Side. You know, Mark, as we go along today, you know, I, we're going to come back, I think, a few times to the word meritocracy. This notion, particularly here in this society, that we judge people and promote people ideally based on their actual worth and accomplishment and how well they've done on standardized tests and what degrees they have. And in some ways, the fact that we're going to be talking about people who exaggerate those qualifications in many instances, um, I wonder if it's sort of, to a certain degree, the product of the environment that we're in, that people are basically judged by what's on their resume. Right. Well, so in the United States, we, we don't 
we abolished the peerage, right? Un- we, our, our forefathers came from a place where you were born to a certain rank, and no matter how much of a blowhard you were, no matter how much of an idiot, if you were a lord or a marquess or a, do you say marquess, marquess, or a, you know, an earl. Well, I think it's that, good that neither one of us knows the correct answer. Because we're Americans. We don't, we don't know that stuff. So, and we came to a place where there really aren't many titles. I mean, there's this big fight over whether what you should call the president. They settled on Mr. President, which sounded reasonably democratic. And other than that, there, we don't have... Uh, hereditary titles. And so what that means is, so I think that's a great thing. And that's that's my whole, the, the, that's the grounding of all of my thinking about titles as well as, as phoniness of titles, which as you know, I've, I've written about. Mm. Um, you know, but because people do have this natural need to order themselves and to and people have ambition and people want to move up in a hierarchy, we then create one. And so the the egalitarianism of the American promise thus uh, forces people to to set up other systems of meaning. And so they call themselves doctor or general or this or that uh, because they don't get to be earl or lord or whatever. So there's something built into America. It's it's baked into America that way. Well, you you and I attended the same uh, fine university where there are, in fact, you know, despite the way despite the fact that we don't have a peerage. There were people called legacies <laughs> who were there at that fine university without any real evident reason for being there. There were. But, um, <laughs> but beyond that, the fine university that we went to way before either you or I attended it back in the 1950s uh, became infamous, temporarily infamous for this experiment they did, this uh, Dr. Stanley Milgram. And I think, and it doesn't sound like it would necessarily have anything to do with what we're talking about today, but I think it does because one of the things that Milgram found out was that um, volunteers who were unaware of how they were being experimented on would administer what they thought were painful and sometimes even lethal shocks. I mean, they weren't real shocks, but they they thought they were administering shocks often just because somebody in a white coat, a white lab coat, was telling them to do it. Um, And, you know, I mean, we don't we don't live in a world 300 years ago where lords and earls and people like that would tell us what to do. And that that was just authority. Authority was conferred by birth, as you right. suggested. Authority is conferred by other things these days. But in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the things we're going to talk about today is the metaphorical equivalent of who's wearing, the, who's white wearing the white Who's wearing the white coat. And I should say that I think there are, there are obviously places and times when you need hierarchies and when you need someone to have the authority, right? It makes sense that there are ranks in the military. Uh, if you, if you want to have a reasonably functional army, as alas, sometimes, uh, you know, nations states need, you, you, then you need to know who's when, – when the fire comes in, who's the person who yells retreat or charge whom you have to obey. I also think that it makes sense probably in certain medical settings to, to know, you know who's the doctor, uh, even though there are extremely competent people who are not MDs and often the patient care is done as well as or better than the MDs by other professionals. The, you know, it, it's important to know where the buck stops. It's important to know who can write the prescription, and there are certain professionals who can and certain ones who can't. So there are communities uh, – Temporary and unstable communities in which it makes sense to have titles and ranks. But I think that in America, the rule should be that none of us wears the white coat, that we treat each other as as Mr. and Ms. or or even just as Colin and Mark and let it go at that. All right. Let's uh, add to our conversation. Uh, Brian Deneen, I mentioned him before, Associate Professor of Management at Cranert School of Management at Purdue University. Um, first of all, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. Uh, actually, I'm Colin. I, I'm Colin. He's Mark. But it, you can call us by interchangeable names. It doesn't make any difference to us because we don't even care yeah. that much about titles. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna call you Jim. Actually, <laughs> we're no, so I didn't go to Cambridge. I can tell you that yeah, <laughs> we didn't either. Yeah, so. we didn't either. We're so unconcerned with title, we don't even care about our first names. So, um, Bud. you study job seeking behavior, right? And and you've recently completed this study. Give us, if you would, anyway, as they say in scholarship, uh, kind of an abstract uh, of the study that you've done. 
Sure, and I, if, if I could, I'd like to start by thanking the Society for Human Resource Management Foundation for their grant for this project, and also my co-authors, uh, Michelle Duffy from Minnesota, Chris Henley from Colorado State, and Key Young Lee from SUNY Buffalo. Uh, we did two studies, Colin, that looked at unemployed job seekers in the first one who were uh, browsing a regional job board, and we asked them several questions about their job search. I'll get into some of the findings. In the second study, we tracked uh, master's students over a two-year period uh, in which they searched for internships as well as full-time employment. And we were looking at several things, but one of the biggest things that we were looking at, and this had to do with some research I had done previously, was do job seekers' strategies tend to shift over time? In other words, do job seekers maybe do certain things earlier in their job search, and maybe, you, maybe they do different things later in their job search. And so a couple of things we found. First of all, uh, we found links between uh, this, this self-reported resume fraud. So we asked people questions uh, about different aspects of their resumes and whether they had falsified or embellished information um, on those resumes. And we found, first of all, that there was a link between that resume fraud and people's admission of things like incivility in previous jobs that they had been in. Um, so the first thing we noticed was, was that there was kind of a common thread or what you might call a person-based explanation. So, uh, you know, in the, in the larger literature that looks at counterproductive or deviant behavior, there's this argument over, you know, whether these things are caused more by people being bad apples themselves or are they in bad barrels? In other words, is it the situation or is it person-based explanations? And so this kind of gave a little bit of a hint of a person-based explanation. So in other words, there's, there's kind of a common thread to where you think if you engage in one type of fraud, you may engage in different types of fraud. Hmm. Um, we also found, though, that uh, resume fraud tended to occur to a greater extent later in a job search process. And um, that was one of the primary findings that, that we looked at. Um, along with that, we found links between job seeker envy, so being envious of other job seekers' success, and resume fraud. And we also found that that was a stronger relationship later in a job search process. Um, so these are these are things we found. Yeah, go ahead. One, uh, we looked at the labor market. So would you think that resume fraud would occur? in a poor labor market or in a better labor market when there's more or less jobs that are available to job seekers. I'll let Mark, and Heimer, yeah, Mark Oppenheimer guess on that. I think so, it, so I'm going to say a poor one, but I'm yeah, guessing... It, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we had thought as well. But no? But we actually found that, that later in the job search process, envious job seekers would commit resume fraud to a greater extent when the job market was perceived to be good. So it was kind of one of these counterintuitive results that we hadn't predicted. And we actually attributed that to... Uh, what we what are would have been termed counterfactuals or counterfactual thinking. So, so a job seeker in that situation is going to say, "Hey, uh, I'm not getting a job. I'm envious about what other people are doing in their job searches, and oh, the job market's good. I should have gotten a job by now, and yet I haven't. Uh, and so it's almost worse. It's almost another kick in the face to realize that the job market's good and I still haven't landed something. So. Later on in this job search process, as pressure increases, we'll talk more about pressure as one component of fraud, 
uh, and we're more certain about where we stand amongst other job seekers, we're more likely to engage in this fraud. Um, by the way, as we go along here, if you have questions or comments uh, about resume inflation, resume fraud, uh, title inflation, all the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about here today, the uh, the whole shadowy world of false credentials, give us a call at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You know, Mark, what he's saying in some ways fits with the conversation we were having before we went on the air, which is the, the great motivating fa- motivating factor that envy is in all <laughs> in all professional life, right? Right. If you see other people getting what you think you deserve or if you just think, well, I'm as bright as that person, that person gets to claim a certain kind of academic degree. I've done more in life and I've I've written better stuff or I've uh, you know, I've made more money in my small businesses. Why shouldn't I claim that? And one of the things that I think is interesting, especially writing about religion, where there are a lot of ministers out there who claim to be Dr. So-and-so or who are referred to as Reverend Dr. So-and-so, who in fact don't have what we traditionally think of as a doctorate, is that there is this kind of slippage where sometimes the doctorate is almost um, you know, their congregants will call them Dr. So-and-so <laughs> so much that, that they kind of figure, well, the community has awarded it to me or my life experience has awarded it to me. And the problem then becomes that a kind of a deception enters in where a lot of people don't – they think what's being claimed is that you wrote a dissertation and were awarded a doctorate. But the job market and the, the, the climate around, I think, Brian would probably agree, does have, can have something to do with one's perception that maybe that's okay. Yeah, and the other thing I'll mention with Envy, and this is something else we looked at specifically in that second study, is that there's different possible outcomes of our envy. So we tend to assume that envious people are going to engage in counterproductive or deviant types of actions to, uh, to address that envy. But we actually looked at the, the potential trade-off between dysfunctional outcomes, so resume fraud in our case, or sometimes our envy can be a catalyst. So we can actually engage in proactive, positive types of actions to redress our envy. Um, so we looked at job seeker effort in terms, in terms of the number of job applications that a job seeker would submit. And one thing that we also looked at, this was some other studies that were done, some folks at Harvard have done several studies on this, looking at what they call self-regulatory depletion. So uh, have either of you had New Year's resolutions in the last couple of years? Oh, yes. I, I don't make them, but... Okay. Uh, and I won't ask you what they were, but let's say that, that you decided you're going to give up chocolate, mm-hmm. you know, starting in the new year. And, you know, you go through the first few weeks of the year, and it's, it's pretty easy to keep your New Year's resolution. And, you know, by the end of January, maybe you're, you're kind of sneaking downstairs and having a, one or two pieces of chocolate. But by March or April, the whole thing's out the window, Right. And so folks have talked about this in terms of trying to regulate your behavior over time. It takes effort to do that. And so, uh, and we have a fixed amount of resources that we can dedicate towards regulating our behavior in different areas, whether it's chocolate or lying on a resume. And that after a period of time, it gets harder and harder to do that. And so what we might see in that case is a shift from what might be more proactive strategies to more dysfunctional strategies. And so, uh, you know, one thing we found related to that was that earlier in job search, when job seekers perceived there to be a good job market, they actually engaged in more effort rather than resume fraud. But then later they shifted to this resume fraud. So 
Uh, there was another study just looking at, at simply, you know, do people tend to, to commit more fraud? This wasn't resume fraud. It was fraud more generally. Uh, earlier in the day or later in the day, <laughs> you know? Uh, mm. So in the afternoon, the article title here is, In the Afternoon, the Moral Slope Gets Slipperier. <laughs> uh, and they actually found evidence that people tend to commit more fraud and be more prone to these types of behaviors later in the day rather than earlier in the well, day. Because it's, it's the 24-hour circadian version of the new year. It, well, yeah, or, or yeah. it's the, so, it's the airport so. rule where when you've been stuck in an airport a certain number of hours, you'll, you'll say anything to the ticket agent to right. get home. You're, all right. of a sudden, you need to get home for a funeral. You need to get home for your daughter's kidney transplant, anything to get that last seat well, on the plane. And, and what you're talking about there is also related to what we talked about in our paper is this issue of deadlines. And so uh, even a job search... As a job seeker, you have some kind of deadline in your head, whether it's a fixed deadline, you know, hey, I've, I've been laid off and my unemployment benefits run out by the end of the year. I need to get a job. Or we're moving. You know, my spouse got a job in a different city. I've got to find a new job by the time we move. But it can also just be a goal that you set inside your head. Hey, you know, I can deal with this for a couple months, but, uh, you know, if I don't have something after a couple months, I'm going to start to look bad and so on and so forth. So we create these deadlines in our head to achieve certain goals. And as we get closer to those deadlines, time pressure increases, makes us more prone to these types of behavior. I think that's kind of a common thread through these studies, the one I mentioned from Harvard and some of the other ones, and then I think some evidence from ours as well. Okay, I want to zoom in on, I want to sort of take a, a case in point, uh, and uh, we can examine it, from a, examine it from a couple of different ways, maybe Ryan from a management uh, perspective, but uh, maybe uh, Mark Oppenheimer also almost from a theological perspective, because it does involve a, ki- a kind of original sin. So this is a very heavily pu- publicized case. It involves a woman named Marilee Jones. She was the dean of admissions at MIT in 2007. It turned out uh, that she had falsified uh, her her degrees. She had claimed to have degrees uh, that she did not have. These are, I think, for the most part, just undergraduate degrees. She didn't have that. 28 years before that, when she applied for an entry-level job, where, in fact, MIT even sort of said, you know, for the job that she wanted at that time, 28 years before, she probably didn't even need a college degree. But anyway, she claimed that she'd done it. Now, what had happened since then was that she'd become sort of a national expert in how to apply for things. And she was, uh, when she got caught, she was, uh, she was making speeches around the country to promote her book, Less Stress, More Success, A New Approach for gui- to Guiding Your Teen Through the College Admissions Process and Beyond. Was, I had no idea the irony was so thick. I had uh, forgotten those details. Yeah, yeah, it was written, co-written with a pediatrician, um, and it, or it, so we think. It, 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 he claimed to be a pediatrician. <laughs> uh, addressed, it addressed not only the pressure to be perfect, but also the need to live with integrity. Um, and, but on campus, it, this is, seems to me to be so often the case. On campus, she was really revered. I mean, people really liked her and and, and thought very very well of her. And and she was. Uh, well, I'm reading for the New York Times article on the campus where Miss Jones was widely admired, almost revered for her humor, outspokenness, and common sense. Students and faculty members alike seem both saddened and shocked. It's like a Thomas Hardy tragedy because she did so much good, but something she did long ago came back and trumped it, said one friend, Leslie C. Perlman. Um, well, I'm going to start with you, Brian. This this is something that comes up again and again, right? Somebody commits resume fraud early in their careers, and 
whether they become CEO of Radio Shack or dean of admissions at MIT, they rise higher and higher and are often very good at what they do. But somewhere percolating in the background is this kind of original sin that they've committed. I mean, from a, can you sort of talk about that from a management point of view, how that gets dealt, what causes it and how it gets dealt with? Yeah, and, I, and actually, I'll add one to that. I, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame, so for me, it was George O'Leary back in early, I don't know if you remember this, from the early 2000s. He was hired as the football coach, and after five days, it was revealed that he had misinformation on his resume about degrees and said he had lettered in football and so forth, and he was dismissed uh, five days later. So uh, I guess, are you asking, uh, you know, should we... Uh, should we continue to hold somebody accountable for something that happened 28 years ago when, when they're, they're in the position they are now? I guess I'm sort of wondering about that or whether, whether people uh, need uh, – uh, I mean, Marilee Jones, probably as she rose up, she might have – in fact, I think she apologized for the fact that as she rose up, she didn't have the courage to correct her resume. Uh, this, this mistake that she'd made very early on is probably a very young person. Um, you know, I mean, from a management perspective, I mean, maybe even just sort of how do people, how do organizations deal with resume fraud? Um, no matter how long ago it happened, no matter how good the person is, is it always an actionable kind of firing offense? Always? I don't think it's always that way. I've certainly heard of cases like that or, or you know, I, I can't pinpoint any specific one right now, but uh, certainly I think there's two sides to it. One is, you know, does the person have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do the job that they're in now? And does that have anything to do with what was on their resume years and years ago? So that's, that's one issue. Uh, the other issue, I think, is, is more in terms of the company's reputation, uh, you know, kind of what the, the fallout might be if other people find out that this person was let off the hook. So I think there's a lot of kind of cultural issues that companies have to deal with when they make that decision you know, whether to maybe excuse somebody or, or, or kind of overlook something that happened years and years ago. Certainly yeah, in, the case of, in a lot of these cases, people really do uh, have the skills and abilities probably to do what they're currently doing. You know, George O'Leary, for example, probably was, was a good enough coach to, to remain coach, even though he didn't actually get an education degree like he said he did. Uh, I think the question in that case was more of a reputational or cultural type of, of, of dilemma that the organization found. That yeah, I mean, Notre Dame football is, as he said, <laughs> in the integrity and credibility of Notre Dame football. No, I'm Im- not promoting it. Impeccable. Right. Impeccable. It can't be. It has to be. A, but, you know, I mean, in some ways, uh, um, Mark, are pe- people being judged for original sin, or does it sound right. more to you like sometimes it's the clash between what they did and what they and the institution currently espouse? So, I mean, what's interesting is that there are two different moral systems going on here. In a case like the um, like Marilee Jones, was that her yeah. last name, at MIT? So the, on the one hand, she has violated a, a certain, you know, a Judeo-Christian and, and legalistic morality that most of us hew to in some way, which is you don't lie. You don't make stuff – you don't deceive people intentionally. That's, mm-hmm. you know, absent – other reasons, that's a bad thing to do, right? On the other hand, there's this sort of folk morality of the people on campus who say, well, first of all, like, who cares? I mean, she's earned it in all sorts of, she's earned her current job in all sorts of other ways that trump that original sin of the lie. She's been a, an employee. She's obviously been extremely successful. The lie was a long time ago. We give people second chances. We forgive. It's understandable that she wouldn't have, would have found it harder and harder to come clean the older the lie is. So there's this folk morality. I mean, on, on Mad Men, there's a couple people working at the firm at this point who 
who it turns out lied about everything. And then when they find out about it, they, you know, as watchers of the show know, the boss always says, well, I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. keep keep earning money for us. I mean, and, and people think it's going to blow up, and they're trying to blackmail people. And then, then when it turns out that they that they you know their bluff is called, and they try to pull the blackmail, the boss says, "I don't care." Um, so I think a lot of people, and I actually am somewhat of this opinion. I have to confess, which is I think that so many degrees, so many academic degrees, are so bogus, including a couple that I've earned. <laughs> they they mean so little. It is so easy. Um, once you're into a doctoral program, sometimes to get out, the failure rate is so low. They're so eager to pass people along and have people succeed that I don't put much stock in them. And there are people who don't have certain degrees who are far, who are very extremely qualified at things. But there's still that word trust, I think, you know, and, and if you, the institutions is selling trust, then that's a problem. Well, they're selling something. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks to Brian Deneen for joining us. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more about this issue of degree inflation and something that Mark Oppenheimer has written about. So we'll come back, talk about that. Right this way, Mr. Vandelay. This is a lovely apartment. Lovely. Kids are going to go crazy. (laughs) Oh, hello. Art. Mr. Vandelay, of course. You two know each other? Mr. Pennypacker. Uh, Yes. uh, I wanted to uh, stop by and make sure that my shark tank fixed it. Uh, Hello. Mr. Pennypacker, this is Mr. Vandelay, and you know Mr. Varnson. Uh, Varnson? Pennypacker? Uh, Vandelay? Pennypacker? Varnson? Vandelay? <laughs> All right, uh, Jerry, that's the Seinfeld show where uh, Art Vandelay was a frequent, uh, I think, pseudonym for uh, George Costanza. Uh, so we're talking about uh, degree inflation. We're talking about title inflation, false credentials. Uh, this has come up recently in the charter school movement here in Connecticut, where uh, the CEO of one charter school company uh, turned out to have allowed himself to be d- depicted for a long time as a Ph.D., uh, when in fact he wasn't. He allowed people to call him doctor. Uh, and, uh, and and this sort of goes to something, Mark Oppenheimer, that you wrote in The New Republic. Um, maybe we could even begin with the tale of Operator Jones, uh, which you use as an, an illustrative parable. Oh, boy. I got more hate mail for this piece than it anything I've ever written. Might have been the timing. (laughs) I do not believe that if I'd written it a week later, I would have gotten less hate mail, but perhaps. Uh, It was was a day or so after Maya Angelou had died, and I wrote a piece. And she was known to many as Dr. Angelou. She called herself that. Her website called her that. Um, And in fact, Wake Forest University, where she taught uh, for uh, many years, uh, referred to her that way. So I wrote a piece about the fact that she had never earned a doctorate. She'd been given honorary doctorates, but, you know, so is Glenn Beck, so is Paul Anka, so is, I mean... Thousands of people get honorary doctorates who don't use it. It's not the custom to use it. And I began with the story of um, when I was taking a, a, a Greyhound bus somewhere out west. I was on a cross-country bus trip, and uh, the driver came over the intercom at the beginning of the trip and said, hey, everybody, this is Operator Jones, and I'll be driving you uh, through Idaho today or something. And I thought, Operator Jones, does, you know, does everyone get an honorific now? Um, now, I actually think – I mean, I, I honor all professions, and I think that you know, people work hard and, and deserve to be respected for that. But I think the term of respect is Mr. or Ms. Uh, and and not, you know, attorney. I mean, my dad's a lawyer. He doesn't go by attorney so-and-so. It's, you know, call me Tim. And and I think that's an important value. Um, 
I wonder also, though, how much that has to do with, I mean, you and I did uh, attend the same university where, despite the fact that they messed with people's heads with terrible electroshock-related experiments, they had this other tradition where I, my recollection was professors weren't even addressed as professor, right. let alone doctor. It was Mr. Alstrom that's or right. at Yale, Mr. Bloom. That's exactly right. At, at Yale uh, College, the tradition has, has was for, you know, a long time, anyway, uh, for the decades uh, leading up to our decades there, um, that professors, no matter how august, no matter how esteemed, were Mr. Uh, you know, there was a sexist twist, which was that unmarried women were Miss. It was Miss Boroff, and then for a time there were Misses. But it had settled into Mr. and Ms. Um, I believe that the title inflation, where all of a sudden people are professor so-and-so, was started in the late, 80, uh, late 80s and 90s. When I got there, I got there in 92, I think part of it came from underrepresented groups. I think women and some minorities felt that, you know, to be honored. It's because a lot of grad students teach as well. So I think the sense um, – I mean I had a woman professor tell me, you know, I want to be professor so-and-so, hmm. um, unaware of the tradition that women were Ms. And you can see for very good reason why historically marginalized groups exactly. would want that honorific. At the same time, I do think it bumps up against a principle of democracy which says that, hey – to say, well, we all got our doctorates or we're all professors, let's all professor each other now, does have a degrading effect on the person who is the janitor or the cafeteria worker who gets to be Joe or Sally. I mean, the other thing, the other thing that it bumps into is something that you said before, which is there's an assumption, like let's say, use the case of Michael Sharp, who's the charter school guy, the Joe Moke Academy guy. Um, the um, there's an assumption on the part of the person who's falsely using or allowing to be used this doctoral title that it's worth something, that it's going to impress some group of people, that it's going to confer on him or her a certain kind of status and credibility that he or she otherwise might not automatically get. And one of the things that you're saying is for, for a certain segment of the population, and we don't really know which segment or how big that segment is, it's not that impressive. It, do, it isn't really worth as much uh, as the person who's risk Risking all to have it uh, thinks it's worth. I think that's right. And to me, this is a, you know, I was trying when I wrote this piece to make a, a, a progressive democratic critique of titles in general, which is that once you've been on the inside of title factories, which is what doctoral programs and master's programs are, right, they often, you know, turn out hundreds, if not thousands of people with these degrees for which the university rakes in money, in some cases for profit money uh, for capitalists. <laughs> once you've been on the side of that process, inside that process, you don't necessarily think that that degree is worth so much. And you see that there are people who aren't particularly gifted who get the degree. And and the flip side is that we end up then, I think, degrading people in all sorts of wonderful and important and necessary professions that don't require degrees. So to me, the whole thing is very uh, anti-democratic and it's kind of it's kind of monarchist in a way. It also just to push that a little bit, it makes you when you when you hear a story like Marilee Jones, the MIT admissions person who was beloved and revered. And there, there are a lot of stories like that. And they often crop up in academia, too. Um, there was a guy, I think, who wound up teaching at Princeton for a while and was the most spellbinding literature professor that anybody had ever had and, you know, could hold the, his, his uh, lecture audiences wrapped with his, you know, descriptions of Moby Dick for uh, 55 minutes. And, and, but he didn't have any degrees. He was a total, quote unquote, <laughs> imposter, you know. But you start wondering about the system itself, all right? So if that guy's actually a better teacher and if Marilee Jones is a better admissions officer, a more creative thinker about all these things, but they've slipped in because for whatever reason, either because they're sociopaths, in which case we need to to discard them or simply because they didn't have the same kinds of entitlements and opportunities. They've slipped in under the radar initially. You kind of wonder about the, the system that would value somebody's 
you know, diploma factory, right. it, title factory thing more than this person's actual it, it qualification. Could, it could be a whole house of cards, and I think in some cases it is. I mean, what it says is uh, think of all of the extremely gifted and wonderful people who don't make it in despite, you know, uh, let's take the uh, professorship, right? Think of all the exceedingly gifted teachers and, and who are who are well-read or extremely learned in their field, who are spellbinding teachers who for whatever reason, because of life circumstances, because of poverty, didn't manage to finish that doctorate, who then don't get to be college professors. Some of them should be, and some of the people who got that doctorate shouldn't be because they got a doctorate, but they don't have much else going for them. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266, if you want to be part of this conversation, 860-275-7266. So at the outset of this show, you said that you were kind of at, well, that, that, that America had really discarded the notion of peerage, uh, that, that America had supplanted the notion of titles conferred by birth with other kinds of values. But do you, do you really believe that? I mean, I actually think, you know, and, and this will sort of lead well into the conversation we have with Walter Kern, that do you think America really has kind of gotten over bloodlines? Uh, no, I mean I just aspire for us to. I think I mean I think it's a it's a goal worth striving for. It's a noble goal that we we should do our best to honor, even though we fail to honor it a lot of the time. It is not a good thing that so many of our politicians are related to other politicians or other children or spouses of other politicians. We don't, you know, her- heredity is not the way to to find the best people. And I think that um, you know it's just it's just cousins to the idea that you can name the best people by calling them doctor or professor so and so, and it just ends up degrading all sorts of people who don't have wealthy or powerful uh, family or patrons or, or privileges of birth. Although what we wind up doing, I think also, I mean, there's sort of an interesting parallelism, right, between the Bush family and the Clinton family. All right. The Bush family, multiple, you know, multiple generations of, of powerful people. Uh, you could argue that George H.W. Bush was, uh, uh, somebody said he might have been the last American president who got the job as sort of a seniority promotion, you know. <laughs> um, you know, whereas the Clintons are arrivistes by comparison, uh, certainly Bill Clinton in particular, you know, they, they, they're our part. They're products of the meritocracy, right? They studied. They got good grades. They scored well in tests. They got themselves into good colleges, better colleges than anybody in their family had previously attended, if they'd attended college at all. Uh, They managed to go from there to graduate school, become lawyers. I mean, they they sort of did all the right things, but now seem to also be – the sort of a different kind of installed noble family. Right, and, you know, I've had people – critique my critique of of titles by saying, look, you want to get rid of all these titles and all these privileges and all these perks at just the moment that other communities of people can have access to them. So, you know, we, we live in an America today where, you know, someone with the humble origins of a Bill Clinton or, you know, with the with the, the difficult circumstances of Barack Obama uh, rises up to become president and they're saying, Oppenheimer, now you want to tell us that it's not okay that your wife that get, then gets to be president or maybe someday your daughter or what? I mean, look, all I can say is I, I'm some, a friend of mine who's a philosopher looked at me and said, "You're what's you're a luck egalitarian." I didn't know what that meant, but I figured I, it basically means I I think we're all just fortunate or unfortunate in circumstances that are beyond our control, and um, I don't think that certain people deserve titles and others don't. All right, before we take a break and go to Walter Kern, a few tweets coming in. Sarah tweets, "I'm getting my doctorate now, and I'm freaked out by the title the and the, oh, the title pride some academics display." All for first name or Mr. or Mrs. in the classroom is Sarah. Uh, Kelly writes, uh, my roommate in law school wanted to be called doctor because she had a JD, a wee <laughs> bit pretentious. Uh, all right. Well, we'll take your phone calls, too, 860-275-7266. It's a conversation we're having about title inflation, resume fraud, fake credentials, and maybe the ultimate uh, of all those compounded, the story you're going to hear after this break. I think you know the truth. 
Resume inflation has become a national crisis, and I say this as a woman, an Episcopal priest, and a retired Jedi Knight. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Littlefinger. For show pages, articles, and pictures of the Faith Middleton Show staff's fake IDs for buying buttery Chardonnay, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, 70 years later, the Hartford Circus Fire is still a mystery. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we'll have, actually, I've already recorded this show, so I shouldn't say we will have. That's a different kind of fraud. Uh, We recorded the show a couple of days ago. Marianne Tyrone Smith, a wonderful novelist, uh, and uh, Don Massey. Uh, and a gentleman from the Circus Fans Association of America are going to talk about this. It's 70 years old, and people still have not come to an agreement about how it happened or what the body count was or the identity of uh, its most famous victim. So we'll talk about all that on tomorrow's show. Right now we're talking about, um, well, credential fraud uh, and, and and fake resumes, and you know, we're about to talk about maybe the ultimate example of that. Walter Kern is joining us. He's a journalist and novelist, the author of Blood Will Out, also uh, the novel uh, up, up in the Air, upon which the movie was based on many other books as well. Uh, this book is about his 10-year friendship with an imposter and murderer who called himself Clark Rockefeller. Walter Kern, welcome to the conversation. Great to be here. So, um, you know, we, we've been talking earlier in the show uh, using a, a word that's uh, near and dear to your heart, the word meritocracy, which is also a, a book you wrote, Lost in the Meritocracy. And and the story that you tell in Blood Will Out is kind of an inter- interesting counterpoint to, to that, right? I mean, uh, one alternative to, to, to trying to either game the meritocracy or simply be good enough to prevail in the meritocracy is to claim to be the kind of person who doesn't have to live by the rules of the meritocracy. And that's kind of what your protagonist did, right? He basically insisted that he was the kind of person who was really above and beyond all that. Yeah, my protagonist is a German foreign exchange student who came over to Connecticut when he was 17. To Berlin, Connecticut, we should say. Berlin, Connecticut. Really... He came from a very small town. He watched the show Gilligan's Island and started imitating uh, Thurston Howell III, the millionaire, his voice, <laughs> his manner. And he finally uh, grew into a person who called himself Clark Rockefeller and claimed to be uh, an heir to the Rockefeller fortune and uh, who was a friend of mine. Um, you know, to Clark, all resumes were fake resumes. Um, just like all money is fake money. Hey, it's just a piece of paper. He, he looked at credentials and he said, you know, the forgeries look as good as the real things. What's the difference? Why don't I just skip to the good part? You know, the book, uh, Blood Will Out, is um, full of, uh, I think, a, a tone at, at times of kind of self-laceration. Uh, one of the questions that you ask repeatedly about yourself is, why, why was it possible to fool you? You look back at, at the script of your, uh, of your tenure relationship with this man, and there are so many blinking lights and, and red flags being waved around. Um, I, I, I feel one of the questions you're asking is, is there something specific about you that made it easy or easier to dupe you or is it something about him right well it was both um you know we all want to trust others and we all want to be accepted 
I wanted to be accepted by a Rockefeller. I'd come from a small town, too, in Minnesota, and I'd come out to Princeton uh, University at 17, met all kinds of wealthy establishment privileged types who didn't treat me very well um, and uh, didn't think that I had the credentials to be of their rank and status. And here comes this Rockefeller who wants to make me one of his best friends. Uh, I jumped at the chance. and. Any contradictions he showed in his behavior, I excused. Any um, uh, tall tales he told that seemed incredible, I uh, put down to boasting. I wanted to believe because I wanted to believe in myself, too. Walter, were there people who were onto him? Who, because, and, and, and if so, do you think it's because they, having perhaps a stronger sense of self or, or being more secure than you were at that age, were somehow inoculated against his story? Well, you know, if there were people that were on to him, he probably identified them immediately and avoided them. But the fact is that at his murder trial just a year ago, people who had known him since he'd come to the country in 1980 got up one after the other, literally dozens of people. And though some of them said he gave me a funny feeling or so on, no one knew that he was fake. And they'd known him under various identities. He'd pretended to be a British uh, baronet and uh, uh, other highfalutin types. But no one had ever called him out. You know, one of the things that you explore in your book also is um, kind of in the vein a little bit maybe of, of Janet Malcolm's uh, famous uh, indictment of, of people who write nonfiction and people who, who report on other people is – the the fact that you were constantly looking at this man and thinking about him as a character and deciding whether or not the answer generally being not to turn him into something to turn him into prose at some some time and that that may have might might have made you also exploitable the fact that you were already dealing with your own questions about uh, do I have any, any utilitarian attitudes towards this guy do do I do I want to exploit him maybe made you less aware that he was exploiting you. Well, that, that's true. I mean, both Clark and I were storytellers. He was telling a story about his life. I told stories for a living on paper. Um, everyone appreciates a good story, and his stories drew me in. And my question about them wasn't always, are they true, but are they good stories? You know, anytime we get fooled in life, let's say we get fooled by a politician or somebody selling us a stock that's no good, we realize afterwards that what happened was we fell for a very good story and failed to check the facts. And I did that, and people do that in elections, and they do that when they make investments, and they do that when they fall in love. Um, So, you know, mine was an intense case of uh, being a sucker for a good story. And I also, I think, had a false sense of competence. Because I'm a writer, I thought... um, Maybe I knew something that others don't. You know, when you're a little arrogant, you tend to be blind. Um, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about people whose whose imposters or whose falsifications are kind of penny ante compared to what we're talking about now. Talking yeah. about, talking about people who exaggerated their degrees, claimed they had doctorates when they didn't really, or you know, the dean of admissions at MIT who, uh, who who got into her job 28 years ago at the entry level, claiming she had an undergraduate degree when she didn't. People who who did these modest inflations and get, they get caught. The, uh, um, this guy was. Uh, 
operating at a whole other level, exchanging identities wholesale, not just the Clark or Rockefeller one, but a whole series of identities. It took forever to catch up with this guy. You, you would sort of think in an age of the Internet where so many things are kind of checkable and, and back traceable that, that this would be impossible. I mean, how do you explain this guy's incredible success at this just gigantic scale uh, of charlatanry? Okay. You talk about people who tell one lie. They lie on their resume. They say they graduated from some place they didn't. In his case, he told a thousand lies. And the thing that allowed him to do that and be so successful was that he was like a hacker. He saw the software that makes society operate is built around credentials and trust. And in every case, whether it was a uh, claiming he went to a school that he didn't go to, which he claimed, or claiming to have a name, which he didn't, which he claimed, he forged a credential because he knew down deep that's all there that's all we have to go on and you know he wrote an orchestra where other people write a pop song and it was all based on the exploitation of these pieces of paper these titles and these other things which he saw as a great idiocy he was he looked at society and said look at even their money is just based on a promise um they go through their entire day. Uh, if a policeman walks by in a uniform, they, they assume he's a policeman because he's in a uniform, not because they know that he's one. And so he manipulated all that social software endlessly. And I think on the one hand, I mean, my take on this has always been, you know, as I, as I said earlier in the show, we need this social software. We need credentials. We need to know who in the army is the general and who's the private or the army won't work. We need to know in the hospital who's, you know, who's the person who's allowed to cut into me and <laughs> who's not. On the other hand, for so much of life, right, the, the, the pieces of paper are meaningless. And what we should really be asking is are people kind? Are they charitable? Are they thoughtful? Are they honest? Um, somehow it's one of the human flaws that we're often too lazy to do that, that appraisal of the important stuff ourselves. And so we sub we, in. We, uh, we, 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 what we call being trusting is often laziness. You know, we don't check up on things because it's easier not to. You see, this social software and all these titles and credentials do one thing. They save time and energy. Right. They allow us to move more swiftly through life and to sort people into piles and to make decisions. And if you had to check every one of them, uh, I remember a few years ago when people started putting uh, up $20 bills or $100 bills to the light at checkout lines, you know, to see if they were counterfeit. And I thought, man, if they have to check every bill every time, we're never going to get through the line. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why we don't check everything, because we would never get through life if we had to. And I think also it raises some really interesting questions about what what is true merit? What is really worth prizing? You know, in, in your book, Lost in the Meritocracy, you describe your own rise from small-town Minnesota boy to, to Princeton student. And, and you say at one point, I was the system's pure product, sly and flexible, not so much ed- so much educated as wised up. So in, in that book, you're kind of making the argument that we're – all a little bit gaming this system, right? We're all a little oh, bit. Of course we are. Yeah. Of, of course we're all gaming the system. Let me give you the example from that book in my case, the SAT test. I realized at a certain point in high school that your value as a potential candidate for college was really came down to a number, your score on SAT tests. And that rather than concentrating on a million different things, 
I had to concentrate on getting that score as high as possible. And that was a very specific set of skills that didn't really have to do with my general knowledge or anything else. And so I did very well there. And, you know, it was part of why I got into Princeton. But, but we're, as human beings, we're always analyzing the game and realizing that there are certain ways to succeed in it um, that give us an advantage over others. And we're always looking for an advantage socially and so on. Um, so credentials and scores and titles and so on give us something to aim at. And sometimes we aim at them too exclusively. So, Mark Oppenheimer, you know, you uh, posit or you hope for, I guess, this kind of utopian <laughs> world in which somehow or other we get past all that and deal with each other as Walter and Mark and Colin as, and as nothing else. But, I mean, how, how realistic is something well, like that? Look, you know, we are fallen creatures. We're not going to get there. But I do think that, that the American experiment was one that said, in part, what happens if you start a country and don't have a, a, a hereditary uh, aristocracy and peerage? And I think that was a really good thing. And I think that redounds to to to, a, to our advantage in in good ways, and I think we should be on guard against the um, against you know native born aristocracies and title creep and all those things. And one way it can start is for people who have those credentials to not go around flaunting them like big jerks. Well, of course, Walter, uh, your book is so much about uh, a German arrival who looks around at the system and goes, "No, they really do have exactly what Marx said that they were trying not to have." Right. Yes, he, he, he did. You know, he got here in the 1980, or about 1980, and just that year a book was called, the, uh, published, The Official Preppy Handbook, and it told... A great book, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it told people book. how to dress, how to talk, what kind of cars to drive if they wanted to seem to be high, wasp, sort of aristocratic types. And he simply copied every lesson from that book, and he fooled the... He didn't even realize it was a parody. <laughs> it was satire, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, sociopaths are immune to irony. They right. just... <laughs> You know, they don't get the joke. They just concentrate on the substance. And so he he dressed in the right polo shirts and he wore no socks and so on. And he fooled the very people who he was imitating. He fooled them (laughs) most of all. All right. We have to stop there. Walter Kern, the book is Blood Will Out, a true story of a murder, a mystery, and a masquerade. Mark Oppenheimer, thanks for joining us in the studio here. My pleasure. Um, Mark's uh, most recent book, I think it's your most recent book. You write them so fast I don't really know. But uh, (laughs) the e-book Zen Predator of the Upper West Side. We'll be back tomorrow with the story of the circus fire. Okay, I got this job doing some voiceover work because I told Colin I listened to his show all the time. But the truth is, I only listen to his show Monday through Friday, and only from 1 to 2. Hey, you know what? I'm a 92-year-old Mongolian coal miner, and I'm one of his producers and his announcer.